Welcome to The Life of Christ, Series 2, Term 3, and this is Lesson 28. We are going to continue where we left off. We last looked at John chapter 2, verse 15. I'll just read that, move forward from there, and go on to the page that we left off at, which was uh, following the quote from R. Kent Hughes. So again, John 2.15, it says, And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. All right. Remember again, R. Kent Hughes says that he was revealing as much of God on this occasion as he did at Calvary. And remember again that because of the, the uh, love that he had for all the downtrodden and the poor and the oppressed, remember it did bring about a hatred for the, all the conditions that caused that. So, you know, the Lord was mad with the people that caused all of this to happen. Yeah. Amen? So this event, though unexpected, must have been thoroughly welcomed by all the Gentiles at the temple, who had had their place of worship turned into a circus by the very people who were meant to be guarding and protecting it from all unholy activity. Let me just say this. It's a terrible thing when the people that are meant to be, and people who profess to be so holy, they allow this kind of atrocity to take place in a place where people are coming to worship. And we know that there was obviously a sense of arrogance about them being Jews and those being Gentiles. You know, there was always this, this, this attitude of we're better than you. Amen? And so who cares if the cows and the sheep are in there? You know, of course, they can't come into our place of worship. So we have to be so careful that we don't allow stuff like that anywhere in our lives or in this church. Amen? That we don't become hypocritical. Alright. It goes on to say in John chapter 2 and verse 16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Now the reason I underline sold doves is because he didn't overturn the cages of the doves. That would have hurt them. He overturned the money changers tables. He drove out the cattle and the sheep. But he says to those that sold the doves, watch this now. He says, take these things away. And do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. God's house was never to be a place or house of merchandise. With William MacDonald saying that in all ages, God has warned His people against using religious services as a means of getting rich. Did you hear that? I like the way he put that. In all ages. That means even today. And we have to be careful of that. Amen? In fact, John MacArthur points out, God's holiness demands holiness in worship. See, it is a holy God that we worship. And He demands holiness. Amen? Especially in His house. Hallelujah. Okay. But sadly that wasn't the case with D.A. Carson reporting that instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. 
In fact, Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship. A right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. This is what the Lord is so concerned and upset about. This is meant to be a place where people come and they they bring their petitions to God. All the things that they've been praying about, all the things that they might have been dealing with through the year, maybe some really big issues. This is the place where they are to come. I mean, this is meant to be a holy temple. It's meant to be surrounded with objects of worship. Everywhere you turn, you should be able to see something that helps you see another side of God, that helps you focus on another truth about how God is going to deliver you, how God is going to bless you, how nothing that can come against you is going to ever overtake what God can do for you. And instead of all of that, we got sheep and cattle and everything else going on. Are you all with me? So this is, this is why Jesus is so upset. Because people that are coming to have contact with God, have fellowship with God, are having to deal with all of this as well. It is important to recognize from this incident that not only is Jesus Christ the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so in, in relation to this, in his commentary, R. Kent Hughes writes, Gentle Jesus... Meek and mild is a concept that has been so overworked that many today preach and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. That Jesus is more of an idol drained of his deity, a weak, good-natured deity whose great aim is to let us off the hook. I'm being sarcastic, okay? And even though Jesus describes himself in that way in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he invites those who have burdens to come to him. We still need to balance this with other descriptions of our Lord. For instance, in Mark 3, 5, the passage describing the man with the paralyzed hand. Jesus looked around at all those who were questioning whether or not he should heal on the Sabbath. And it says that he looked around at them in anger. Further, further to this, Hugh says, I am sure the Pharisees in the temple saw nothing of this gentleness, meekness and mildness when he said, you are like whitewashed tombs and you snakes, brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Amen. But at this time, this is the very first experience that the disciples have had with this side of Jesus. And it's very likely that they were standing there shocked and dumbfounded at what had just happened. I'm sure some of the mouths were just open. Like, what happened? <laughs> you know, okay. The Spirit of God brought Psalm 69.9 to mind. With John 2.17 going on to say, Then his disciples remembered that it was written. They didn't remember now, they're going to remember later. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. In other words, it was only later that his disciples remembered this incident and understood its significance. They didn't understand it while they were standing there shocked, while they were embarrassed, while they were trying to cover up and hide somewhere so Aunt May wouldn't see them. You know what I'm trying to say? You know, you don't know who was in there. Remember again? Okay, but later on, when everything happened, when he rose from the dead, when they begin to see him the way he really was, for who he really was, then it would have made all the sense in the world. 
Amen? Okay. So, in other words, it was only later that his disciples remembered this incident and understood its significance, that Jesus, consumed with zeal for God's glory and God's house, would not tolerate irreverence toward God. He was the only one who truly understood what should have been going on in the temple. Especially, and I want to read these scriptures out to you, please take these scriptures to heart. In light of 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, where it stated that it came to pass... When the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering, or literally could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That is what was meant to be happening. Do you see now what Jesus is seeing on the inside and what is going on on the outside? Amen? You know that glory was Him. You know He would have filled the house. Remember, He was the fire, the pillar of fire, and the cloud that led the Israelites on their journey. That's what should have been going on, with everyone fully focused on God and God alone, so that the glory cloud could once again return to the temple, and not even the priests would be able to stand and minister in it. Now that's something that we're looking forward to in this church. Happened when we were in the building. Things would happen and it would be almost like smoke in the place. People used to just keep commenting, it just feels like there's smoke here and... Yeah, nobody was smoking. Okay, <laughs> It was just that glory of God was just coming in. And uh, you know what? That can happen anywhere. It can happen here. God doesn't need anywhere except a place where we are for it to happen and for our hearts to be in that place. It's going to mean that the things that we're doing in our praise and our worship and the participation of everyone in the church goes up. Because as we all start to worship God, that's when all kinds of incredible things will start happening. And we're looking for those and praying for those things in God's time. Alright, in the preface of his wonderful book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says that with our loss of the sense of majesty had come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshipper today. Speaks volumes, doesn't it? Amen? Do you know, one of the indications of that is when people look at the building more than, is God here? They look at the number of people more than, do I sense God? They're thinking, oh, this is not a successful church, or this is a successful church. doesn't matter how successful their relationship with God is. That doesn't matter. Let's see how many people are here. If there's a lot of people, then it's a good place. No, it's just a place for you to get lost. It's more distraction for you. To tell you the truth. Do you hear what I'm saying? Amen. As this church begins to grow, we need to learn how to find our quiet place, even though there might be 200, 300, 3,000, 5,000. It shouldn't matter. If we learn to do the right thing, if we enter the presence of God correctly, you won't know there's anybody next to you. That takes practice. That takes time. But it should be something we are working on and moving towards. All right. 
In fact, R. Kent Hughes reminds us that there was once a time when there was such a fullness in our lives that we were excited and overflowing, like the Holy of Holies, filled with Shekinah glory. We had awesome visions of God, but then something happened. And now the fullness is gone. And what's really sad is that so often it happens so easily. Now, not to anybody here, but this is usually the journey a lot of Christians take. When they first get saved, they're all excited and bustling and... Some Noel Crowdy comes and says, Yeah, just give it a couple of weeks, you'll settle down. Translation, you'll become dead like me. No, <laughs> okay? You don't ever want them to settle down. You want them to become mature. But the excitement should never go down. Do you hear what I'm saying? Right? The excitement in my heart is still there. It's matured. I'm not trying to get all my cats and dogs saved anymore. No, but <laughs> no. you know what I'm trying to say. Okay, I, I mean, I was overzealous with a lot of what I did. And it brought some hurt to some people. And I really would wish I could change some of those things. But, you know, you, you learn and you move on. Amen? But the thing is that one thing I learned, because I was about to say, okay, you know what, I need to settle down and everything else. And God said, you better not. Because the things that you need to study and the things that I'm going to give you are, are going to need that excitement. Because in that excitement is determination. In that determination is faithfulness. And if you don't have that, then you won't be faithful to anything. Amen? Amen. Alright. The good news is that Jesus does care about us. His temples. And if given the opportunity, He will come and cleanse us and restore us to our former glory. And while the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, that He might sanctify and cleanse her. That is the church, and by extension, each and every one of us. Amen? We are the church, okay? With the washing of water by the Word. That's what's going on right now. You are being washed by the Word of God. Everything that you're receiving right now is just washing through you. I don't know if you realize that or not. Amen? Alright. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. That is what the Lord is doing in each and every one of our lives. To bring us to a place when we are walking in that holiness, when we are walking in that place of not having any blemishes. Do you know it's a very simple thing not to have those blemishes? First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess, if we acknowledge our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all our blemishes. Amen. <laughs> okay? And restore us back to righteousness. So that is the church that God is coming back for. It is not a perfect church. But it is a church that knows how to keep herself in God. So no matter what mistakes we make, we know to quickly go to God and say, Oops, I'm sorry. Okay, continuing in John chapter 2 and verse 18, it goes on to say that, So the Jews answered and said to him, oh, Can you believe this? this is just like them. What sign do you show us since you do these things? Now, whenever John says Jews, he means religious hierarchy. Okay, that's John's way of just labeling the whole bunch of them. He just says Jews. 
It's very interesting. The other Gospels will say Pharisees or, you know, scribes or Sadducees. They'll sort of name them, but John's Gospel, he just says, Jews. You know Jews, right? Yeah, them. Got a serious weed up there, wherever. Anyway, so, okay? So that's why it always says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Or literally, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I.e. cleansing the temple. There should not have been a sign necessary. The cleansing of the temple was the sign. Do you understand? That God had entered the house found it wanting, cleared everything out, and had said, this should be a house of prayer. How dare you turn my father's house into a den of thieves? That was the sign. Let's begin. D.A. Carson points out that the way they cast their question betrays two critical deficiencies. First, they display no reflection or self-examination over whether Jesus' cleansing of the temple and related changes were foundationally just. Let's stop there. They didn't once ask, was what he did actually right? Have we gotten off track? Should we be examining ourselves? Should we be asking ourselves the question, what happened? You know, we're professing to be people, men and women of God. Are we doing things that somebody has to come in with a whip and get our attention before we decide to change anything? Where is our relationship with God? Where was God speaking to us and saying, you shouldn't be doing this? Why weren't we hearing Him? Have we drifted so far away from Him that we didn't hear any of that? Or have we seared our consciences so much that we don't want to hear that? Self-examination. Reflection. Okay, They are therefore less concerned with pure worship and a right approach to God than they are with questions of precedent and authority. So they don't care about pure worship and the right approach to God. They're going, uh, excuse me, what authority, what right do you have to do these things? What so many churches are guilty of today, by the way, okay? More interested in their ceremonies and in their religion than is God here. And are we even concerned that he's here or not? Is it more important that we swing our little thing right and that we wear the right dresses and, you know, that, you know what I'm trying to say? That we sit up and kneel and all the right times and yada, yada, yada. Let's continue. Second, if the authorities had been convinced that Jesus was merely some petty hooligan or that he was emotionally unstable, there were adequate recourses that they requested a miraculous sign demonstrates that they harbored at least a suspicion that they were dealing with a heaven-sent prophet. Did you catch that? That is incredible when you think about it. Notice what they said. They didn't say, take this fellow out of here. He's out of his mind. The man is frothing at the mouth. You know what I'm trying to say? They didn't say any of that stuff. Look at what they did say. They said, "Uh, show us a sign. You can only ask that of a person that you suspect will give you a sign. That being the case then, if the only thing that would gain and maintain their allegiance and satisfy them for the moment was a sign. And I said for a moment, okay? Because these people are never satisfied. Have you ever ministered to someone and you, you feel like you got through and later on they're like, oh, no, no, no. 
you have to prove it to me all over again. And you think, oh, seriously? Just take that as a sign of maybe that heart isn't ready. Those people need more prayer before you put anything in the ground because the seed is falling on hard ground. The ground needs to be tilled by the Holy Spirit first. It's not your job to turn concrete into good ground. You hear what I'm saying? Amen? Alright. Again, that being the case, if the only thing that would gain and maintain their allegiance and satisfy them for the moment was a sign or a miraculous display of some kind, then that's the kind of allegiance not worth having. When you have to constantly prove yourself to people, those are the people you don't want to bother with. Move on. Because they're not worth your time. They're going to waste your time. They are going to cause you to be exhausted, tired, and maybe give up on what you're doing. Don't be there. Amen? In his commentary, William Hendrickson says that this request for a sign was stupid. (laughs) Because the temple cleansing was itself a sign. Further, the request was also wicked. The result of an unwillingness to admit guilt. The authorities should have been ashamed of all this graft, corruption, that's corruption, and greed within the temple court. Instead of asking Jesus by what right he had cleansed the temple, they should have confessed their sins and thanked him. Yeah, that'll be the day, <laughs> okay? Amen. That's what should have happened. But you know what? Sometimes, and the reason I'm giving this to you is so that you see what should happen. When you are in a situation, when you are having this kind of a dealing with people, you need to know what should be happening as opposed to what actually happens. Because otherwise the enemy will lie to you, and he will use that situation to cause you to go into depression, and be discouraged to a place where you just want to just give up and just move on, and just think, you know what, it's not worth the trouble. Hey, 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 that person isn't worth the trouble. But somebody else is. Don't let one person ruin it for everyone. Amen? We need to be just strong, understand, okay, you know what? That isn't something bad about me, that's them. I just need to move on. Are you all here? Okay. In the epistle of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about the Jews' continual obsession with signs, and says in verse 22, God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it is true. So this is the reason why, remember again, he's Jew. Okay, he was a Jewish, he was a Pharisee, he was everything. Alright, and so he knows the kind of people he's dealing with. And it's very interesting that he wrote this down and seems, you know, that God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they always want a sign from heaven to prove everything. And that's not the way. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus, in fact, did perform sign after sign following this incident. And yet all these people ever did was criticize and condemn Him. Oh, it's the Sabbath day, how could you? See, on one hand they ask for a sign, but when they see the sign, they're criticizing it. Do you think maybe Jesus knew that? That if He did a sign, then He would be being led by them and their agenda, and be subject to their criticism of what is just done, their disapproval. Any fight that you start, you're going to lose. I need you to know these things. Why am I saying all of this to you? People ask you to prove yourself, don't. There's no faith there. 
So whatever prayer you pray, it's just going to be like, oh, well, let's see that happen. Well, that's not going to happen. Jesus said, if you can believe, then all things are possible. If you're going to reject and doubt, forget about it. I'm not even going to bother praying. Amen? Because they want you to prove that God's alive. Oh, pray and let's see if it happens. No, not for you. Get it? Got it. Move on. All right. In fact, one such incident is recorded in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, where it says, So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Further to this, there's also Mark chapter 3 and verse 2. We'll finish here. Where it says that since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. Would he heal the man's hand on the Sabbath? If he did, they planned to accuse him and condemn him. So all this tells us that there was absolutely no way of pleasing them. No sign would have been good enough. Amen? And that's why knowing this, Jesus points to them to the oh, yeah, Jesus points them to the only sign that would convince them of his deity, and that's his resurrection. And he says in John chapter 2 and verse 19, sorry, I just want to read this. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Ooh, that's not going to go down well with them, and we are going to take that up next time. <laughs> okay? Because there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to follow on from there. If you turn the page, you can see a lot of scripture there we're going to have to look at. All right. Let's leave it there for today. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. As we conclude this session, hallelujah. Well, Father, we thank you today for this.